I'd like the Telezas and Jeffries to come forward. Last Sunday we brought in four new members, and then in the first service today we brought in two more new members, and in this service we're going to be bringing in four new members. So. Let's all move this way a little bit. Listen carefully as I present to you the covenant of membership by which you pledge your allegiance to God and faithfulness to the church. As a member of the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, I accept the Bible as the word of God in which is revealed the way of salvation and the guide for faith and conduct. I witness to a personal experience of God's saving grace in my heart and separated unto Christ. I want to live a holy life. I covenant as a member of the Brethren in Christ Church to instruction in Bible doctrine, to support and sustain the services of the congregation by my regular attendance and prayers, to contribute to the program of the church as the Lord prospers me, and to foster a spirit of Christian fellowship and oneness within the church. If this is your purpose, will you affirm this covenant by answering, I do. I do. I've asked each person to give a brief testimony of their spiritual journey and why they have chosen to join the church this morning. And so, Angela, we will start with you. This is Angela Jeffries. Good morning. I guess we've been here about eight years now. So. <laughs> but uh, we were drawn here um, because it was a multicultural church, and that's what we were looking for. And the kindness and the love is what, what really um, made us know that this was our home church. So we're really blessed to be part of the congregation. Anything you want to say about Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> My testimony's really long, so... <laughs> Um, I got you saved. Just say you love him. Yeah, I got saved very young. Um, actually, you're probably familiar with Teen Challenge. Well, the girls' version of Teen Challenge came to a church. It's a very long story, but um, I remember the devil tried to stop me from going. The baby fell out of the car seat as I was running, and it was raining, and I ran in the house crying. And need to be here and I said no I'm not coming I'm a terrible mother I didn't strap the car seat right and I was crying she said no the devil's trying to stop you you need to come we're picking you up and and I went and I wasn't saved and the Holy Spirit just drew me and it was just amazing and after that I went to a creation concert I don't know if any of you and I really it's been a really wonderful journey no turning back since that was about 30 years ago (laughs) amen uh, first and foremost, honor, glory, and praise to the Lord, my Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. This is Tony. <laughs> um, I grew up in a Baptist church. Uh, my father was a deacon since he was uh, 19 years old, teenager. Mm. And they used to call, my nickname used to be called Deke because of my father. <laughs> but anyway, to make a long story short, I'm honored and blessed to be a part of, of this congregation, such a loving and warm, friendly congregation. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I'm, I'm glad you uh, accepted us. Amen. And um, we're grateful to serve with you, the community, and the world. Amen. This, this is Helen. My name is not Bonnie. <laughs> if Bonnie is here, I want to see you because everybody calls me Bonnie. We must look alike. <laughs> Uh, It was hard to know how to boil down 60 years of following Jesus (laughs) into three minutes, but I will talk fast. Uh, In 1959, as a youth, I confessed my faith and was baptized into the the Disciples of Christ Church. 
And then in 1973, after my son was born, I had a tremendous moving of the Spirit, and God opened up the scriptures like he never had before, and I, I vowed to follow him close, <laughs> closely the rest of my life. By 1979, our family moved to uh, Napanee, Indiana, and there Gene Zerker, I think you know the Zerker name, invited us to the Napanee Church. I'd never heard of the Brethren in Christ before, but we gave the church a try, and we stayed there for two and a half decades. During those years, I had a great opportunity and privilege to serve the church in a lot of ways. Uh, they were great years of learning and growing, and uh, I, love the, I love the Brethren in, church, uh, Brethren in Christ Church, devoured everything about its history and its theology, and uh, really appreciate the Brethren in Christ. As for where I am with Jesus now, <laughs> it's sort of a result of where the last 20 years have gone. Um, after a very painful divorce, uh, we lost our marriage, our church, uh, my, my identity <laughs> as a person and a servant of Christ. Um, and the last 20 years, I've just leaned on, be still and know that I am God. Amen. Be still. Um, now I seem to be entering a phase where my body is just giving me messages that it's getting old. And um, I'm, I'm leaning on uh, the book of John and the fact that we should trust and obey, not be afraid. Thank you for being a church that has accepted us as a biracial couple. Um, we met 15 years ago, and this man has helped me grow in faith a lot. So we're happy to be joining with you and sharing in your mission. Thank you. Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Jose. I came to the Lord in 2001 because of a friend who invited me to church. He changed my life. I was Catholic before. I had always believed in God ever since I was a child and what wanted to know who God was. In Mexico, I was in, in a lot of accidents and had a lot of problems, but always knew God was with me. My relationship with God now is very beautiful. I was baptized a few years ago, and God is with me all, all the time. We chose this church because you receive everyone without destinations, the pastors, bring wonderful messages, and we continue getting to know God even more. Amen. Thank you for receiving us as members. You have heard the commitment these brothers and sisters are willing to make to you and to this church. Will you covenant with them to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? 
and to live a life of love toward one another just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you? If so, will the members of this congregation please indicate this by standing? Will everyone please stand as we pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are a part of us. We pray you bless them and use their gifts for your glory. We thank you for each and every one of them, for the unique, only one of their kind in all the universe. Lord, thank you for the fellowship and communion of believers. So, Lord, we give them to you. We thank you. Bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen. and amen. amen. Upon your testimony and acceptance of the membership covenant, we welcome you into the fellowship of this church with all the privileges and responsibilities associated. Oh, and there's your membership. There you go, Jose. There you go, Angela. And there you go, Tony. Let's welcome them into the body of Christ at Harrisburg. Welcome. You may be seated. Kitties may go to kitty land. Before I get going, I want to say that um, next Sunday after this service, after the second service, we're having, um, what do we call it, Linda? Welcome meal. A welcome meal. If you've been here six months, a year, less, please come and you will have a delicious lunch. And you will get to meet the staff, and, and, and we'll get to know you a little better. You can sign up at the information desk uh, in the back there. I'm reading today from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 4 and verse 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then in verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In this passage, Jesus makes it plain that he expects a fruitful life from us. One of the key thoughts in this passage is abiding, the continual contact between vine and branches. Jesus said it, no, no contact, no fruit. But one of the major themes of this passage is often overlooked, the necessity of pruning for fruit bearing. In order to increase its capacity to bear fruit, a young vine was not allowed to fruit for the first three years of its existence. Each year it was cut drastically back that it might develop and conserve its life and energy in order to bear more fruit. It was pruned because there were two kinds of branches on it. One were fruit-bearing kinds of branches, and the other were non-fruit-bearing kinds of branches. And it is these non-fruit-bearing branches that God wanted cut back, because if they weren't cut, they would drain away nutrients 
essential for fruit bearing in the fruit bearing branches. John Wilkerson said that uh, years ago, he and his family moved into the country. He said we needed to slow down, and we were looking forward to enjoying the beauty of our new place. A couple of days after we unpacked, he said, I was puttering around in my garage when I noticed my neighbor hacking down a row of grapevines that rambled along a fence on our shared property line. I had assumed that we owned the vines jointly. Wasn't that how things worked in the country? We already had visions of feasting on bucketfuls of grapes in the fall. I walked over to say hi. My neighbor, a large white-haired man in overalls, wielded the biggest set of shears I'd ever seen. All around him lay heaps of grape branches. You don't like grapes, I guess, Wilkerson said, trying to conceal his distress at all this hacking going on. Love grapes, he said. Really? Well, I thought maybe we would be sharing the crop from this vine, and, I, and he, he said I hesitated. Maybe it was too late to do any good. He said he eyed my shiny shoes. You're a city boy, aren't you, he said. Not exactly, but I don't know about grapes, do you? He broke in and went back to hacking on the vine. I told him I knew I liked the taste of them, and I told him that I had particularly liked the promising look of this row of grapes when I bought the place. You like big, juicy grapes, he said. Of course, my family does too, I said. Well, son, he said, we can either grow ourselves a lot of beautiful leaves filling up this whole fence line, or we can have the biggest, juiciest, sweetest grapes you and your family have ever seen. And then he stood up and looked at Wilkerson. He said, but you can't have both at the same time. The vine can never produce fruit it is capable of without drastic pruning. You can have a lot. See, there are vines that produce leaves and vines that produce grapes, and you have to cut one of them back. You can't have both. When we think of God pruning our lives, we often assume that he's cutting out sin, lust, greed, the selfishness of our heart. But if God were cutting or pruning those kind of branches, he would talk about not pruning the branches, but digging up the weeds or cutting off diseased branches or, or getting rid of diseased plants. When God prunes, he's not talking about cleaning out weeds or disease. He's talking about cutting away good healthy branches. He's cutting away the normal activity of the plant. He's talking about good things, these good things in life, those things that are not inherently evil, but they prevent fruit bearing. Those are the branches that need pruning. Let me give you a small snapshot of what I'm talking about. A pastor said that uh, when his boys were little, ages six and ten, they were smitten with a fish bug. They desperately wanted to purchase and populate an aquarium. Being a pastor of a growing church, however, didn't leave much time for fishing expeditions. But it meant so much to my little guys, he said, that I set aside time for a family outing one Saturday morning. Finally, the big day came, and it was truly a big day to my kids. They were on their way to Fish City to look at filters and rocks and fake foliage and fish. And as I learned on the way, the boys had done their homework. They told me about freshwater fish, saltwater fish, fighting fish, puffer fish, spitting fish, and fish that make a living sucking slime off the sides of a tank. They wondered aloud if the store would have any Brazilian fighting guppies or silver tip flying angels, whatever that is. He said, we got out of the car at Fish City, and Joyce and the boys made it an excited beeline for the door. 
I was going that way too, but got headed off at the pass by a man from our congregation who spotted me in the parking lot. I waved my family on. This would only take a minute. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw my youngest son pause at the door. The expression on his face said, Dad, you are coming in, aren't you? We are going to do this together, aren't we? He said, I smiled and nodded, and he went on in. Somehow, though, I knew better. He said, I allowed this man to draw me into a discussion on the fine points of a peripheral church issue. I could have excused myself, he said. I should have excused myself, he said, but I didn't. And when I finally broke away and went into the store in time to meet my family coming out, Joyce was holding the aquarium and the boys were clutching little water-filled bags of brightly colored fish. And Mark looked at me, Dad, where were you? We waited for you as long as we could. We wanted you to help us decide. I'd missed that opportunity to be with them. Never again would they select fish for the first time. And there was no way to go back and do it again. On the way home, they were very quiet. On the way home, I grieved. How trivial, you might say. Yet what is parenting but a hundred million small choices just like that? And each choice affects the next. This was the first time they bought tropical fish. But how about their first little league game? How about their first parent-teacher night? How about getting home from their first dates? How about the first time they would be rejected by a girl or boy or challenged by a bully or tested in their faith by a cynical teacher? Would I be there for them too? Would my choices subtly, oh so gra gradually through the years, lead me right out of their confidences, right out of their hearts, right out of their lives? Be careful the habits you get into. That pastor had a choice to make, to bear fruit or take care of church business. Was church business a sin? Of course not, no. But there was a higher priority that needed to take priority that day. Forming lives was more important than church minutia. Fruit trumps whatever else is going on the vast majority of the time. You see, Jesus is saying that it's not riotous living that usually saps the Christian of their fruit-bearing capacity. It's the often normal, the often good, the often everyday activities of life that saps our energy from fruit-bearing. Jesus is calling us to question our priorities. He says that, only, that our chief priority is fruit-bearing. Reproducing his love, reproducing his life, flowing through us into our families and neighbors and into the world. He goes further to say that anything, even good normal activities that interfere with the flow of his spirit, the flow of his life, need to be pruned. Again, what I've discovered for many of us, and it's so easy to do this, I've discovered that people can become addicted to almost any kind of behavior or activity. Work, fitness, perfectionism, control, sports, collecting antiques, rescuing other people in a compulsive kind of way, acquiring financial status. The list goes on and on. 
One of the things I've noticed in Christian circles is that we are against certain addictions. But, and here's the sad part, often we bless certain other addictions. We applaud them, like perfectionism or workaholism. It benefits us to get someone who works and works and can't seem to stop. The good things in life can be the things that drain our lives. They must be kept in check in order to bear fruit. As Dr. Paul Meyer said, you know, that our strengths can become our weaknesses. Particularly tough to recognize are those traits that masquerade as strengths. There are characteristics that appear to be positive on the surface and usually earn us generous strokes and attaboys and girls from the people around us. Again, such traits might include a relentless dedication to hard work, a dogged determination to stay fit, a driving desire for financial security, an intense need to help other people and we can't stop, a tireless insistence on order in the house. At first, these sound harmless, but carried to extremes, the most positive activity can become an addictive a destructive addiction that can cause excruciating pain to its victims and dangerous fallout to the victim's family. What well, you know, on the surface, very, very often, it is very difficult to tell what needs to be pruned in somebody's life because often they masquerade as virtue. You can never tell what the Lord might prune. You can never tell when, where somebody's life is becoming warped and distorted. You can never tell when somebody is giving their, the deepest part of their heart to lesser things. You can't tell that. Prune literally means cut back on. In other words, Jesus is saying, streamline your life so that love will be first, so that fruit will be first, so that worship will be first. Because Jesus is not impressed with clean houses with scarred children living in them. He's not impressed with PhDs who are lousy husbands and wives. He's not impressed with experts in this field or that field or who are too busy or too ignorant to be a good father or mother or friend or neighbor or servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to see fruit. That is his major priority. Come the day of judgment, Jesus will not ask us if our floors were properly waxed. He will not ask us how big our portfolio was. He will not ask us how many college degrees we acquired or how brilliant we are. He will check our fruit. How much time and priority did you give to fruit-bearing relationships? What about you? What are you becoming? What kind of fruit is being grown in you? The last and probably the most important thing I can say about pruning is this. We can help to some degree in prioritizing our lives properly and in the pruning process. But we need to remember this. God is in charge of pruning, not us. He is the master of the vineyard. He is the master gardener. He ultimately must control the pruning process. You know why? Because if we're in charge of it, 
much, much, a whole lot of pruning will not be done in our lives that where, the, where the real pruning needs to take place. We'll just snip a twig here and snip a bud there and a little off the side. And, but the larger branches that hold the key to real fruit bearing will not be touched. Some of you this morning may be asking, how do I know when I'm getting pruned? <laughs> Again, pruning is not the same as life's normal ups and downs. We live in a fallen world and things go wrong all the time. Getting the flu is not being pruned. Getting a speeding ticket is not being pruned. Stubbing your toe or they cancel your favorite program is not being pruned. Accidents happen. Stuff happens. That's not pruning. Nor is pruning allowing the devil to beat you up. When the devil comes after you, your job is not to be his punching bag. Our job at that point is to pray and resist the devil in order to get him to stop what he's doing in our lives. And most importantly, pruning is not the same as punishment. As I said earlier, pruning is not about God cleansing us of obvious sin. Pruning is about God increasing our capacities to, to, to bear his life and his power and his character and his influence in our lives into the world. It's not about doing something wrong and being corrected by God. It's about God doing something in us right and wanting more of it in our lives. Remember, when you cut away the leaves, you were cutting away the normal part of the plant. You weren't cutting away weeds. Besides that, if you sin, the Bible is clear on how to deal with that. Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sinning can be corrected. That's not pruning. It's called confession and repentance. Pruning is not the, most of the time, pruning is not the natural consequences of sin. You see, a lot of people keep shooting themselves in the foot and then asking, why me, God? If you're, if you're an alcoholic and you're drinking yourself into the ground, you do not, when the day comes that you have cirrhosis of the liver, you don't have to look up to heaven and say, why me, Lord? If you do drugs and you go broke and you lose your family, you do not have to look up and say, Lord, why, what are you doing to me? The Lord's doing nothing to you. You're doing it to yourself. It's a consequence of sin. If you're a bitter person, don't ask God why you have so few friends. That's a consequence of your personality, your stinking personality. <laughs> if, you, if you keep shooting yourself in the foot, don't look up at heaven and say why. Look in the mirror and ask why. Pruning is not God punishing us for sin. Let me tell you a little secret. God doesn't punish his children for sin. All our punishment took place on the cross. God never does anything to his children to punish them anymore. No. What is pruning about? It's not about punishment. It's about God increasing us, enlarging us, so we can bear more fruit. Years ago. I, had, I have three sons. They're all grown. They're 29, and this June they'll be 29, 27, and 25. Their mother's getting old. And uh, we need more fruit in this place. <laughs> but anyway, they were, young, they were young kids. I was young, too. I had hair. And, uh, and they had allergies, bad allergies. And so... 
It was my job. We have a division of labor. But my job was to take the boys to the emergency room every time they needed it and to take them to the allergy doctor. And uh, one of my sons handled it just fine. They'd give him a shot and he was fine. But one of my other sons thought this was torture. He wanted us to call children and youth. Every office visit was the same. The whining, the protesting, the tears. And then when we got to the doctor's office, he would hide under the desk of the doctor with his coat on. And I'd have to get him out from under there and pry him out, and then I'd have to pry his coat off of him. It's hard to get a coat off a kid when they don't want it off. <laughs> then I'd give him a chance to get on the table and take his shots without my help, which he always resisted, and he was always moving, so the doctors were afraid to stick him. I said, take a shot. Uh, and then as a final measure, I'd crawl up on the table or the gurney or whatever they call that thing, and I'd put him right on my lap, and I'd hold both of his arms still while I was, had my arms wrapped around him, you know, pull his sleeve up, and then I'd whisper things to calm him down because his head was right there, you know, and I'd, I'd just go, listen, if you don't let them give you this shot, Santa Claus is not coming this Christmas. <laughs> He's not going to do it. <laughs> Listen, if you, don't, if you don't behave yourself, you'll never sniff chocolate again. You'll, it just ain't going to happen. And, of course, the old standard, if you think a needle hurts, wait till I get you home. That's a standard. It was hard to explain to that young boy that what I was doing with him was an act of love. This was not me being mean. This was not me punishing him. He had done nothing wrong. All I was trying to do was to increase his capacity to breathe, to stay healthy, to stop his eyes from running all the time and his nose from running all the time, to be less sick during the year. I just wanted him to be whole. Was it painful? Oh, yes, to both of us. But I knew of no other way to get the allergy serum in him. I was willing to take a short-term loss for a long-term gain. And that is exactly true for God. That's what pruning is. It is taking a short-term loss for a long-term gain. Because, you know... You know how, how you're being pruned? It's really hard sometimes to tell because I have found the times in my life when I was really being pruned, there were things going wrong and I was totally out of control with them. And I, I, it wasn't normal life. It wasn't the normal bumps and bruises we get in life. And it wasn't the consequences of sin. And it wasn't the devil. And I tried to fix it. There were certain things that happened in my life, in Kim's life, in our family's life, where I tried to fix it over and over again, and it wouldn't get fixed. And by the way, if you can fix something, fix it. If you can take a shot for something, take a shot. If you, if you can get away from something bad, get away from it. But when pruning is taking place, you're in a situation you can't run away from, and you don't know how to fix it, and you've tried to understand, up, understand it, and you came up with no answers, and you repented over and over again, Lord, if I've done anything wrong, and, and 
that doesn't do any good because you didn't do anything wrong. And you hurt. And over and over again, you ask, why? Why is this happening to us? At this point, you're probably getting pruned. But know this. Like me holding my son while he got serum, there is only love at work in your life when God is pruning you to increase your capacities to bear fruit. There is no punishment going on here. It's God using the unsolvable problems of life to grow us so that we may bear much fruit to the glory of God. Just ask King David. Remember the start of his career? Chased all over the country by Saul. What had David done wrong? Nothing. But he was being groomed and pruned to be a king who would be a reference point for kings throughout history. And so God had to grow him. God had to increase his capacities. Or ask Moses what he did wrong. Nothing really. He killed an Egyptian for abusing a Hebrew. But I don't think that bothered God so much because God was planning on killing a whole lot more of them. God had big plans for Moses. And what did he do? For 40 years, he gets to go into the desert and shepherd sheep and be pruned in order to be used by God in miraculous ways. Or take Elijah. This, this is one of the ones that's really strange. You talk about a guy that had reached the apex of his spiritual life. He had faced down 600 prophets of Baal. He had called down fire from heaven. The next thing you know, he's on the run because they, they tell him, Jezebel's after you. Had he done something wrong? Oh, no, the opposite of that. But it wasn't until he was scared and exhausted and on the run that he learned to hear God's still small voice in a cave. When God needed to grow him, it wasn't on the top of Mount Carmel with a fire falling. It was in a cave where he could hear a whisper. That is fruit bearing. Like my spiritual directors always said, when certain problems wouldn't go away, and I'd walk in. Kent Groff was my spiritual director, and I, he was my spiritual director for, for uh, 12 years, and I saw him monthly. And I'd go in, and usually it was complaining. And he would always look at me with that smile. When I tell him, well, this is going on, and this is going on, and I don't like this. And, and he would always look at me, and he say, would say, what's God saying to you? And then here's where he would zing me. He would say, where is the gift in this? Where are your capacities being increased for fruit? And I'd say, I don't know, and I don't care. And it, no, it, what I discovered is this. I don't like pain. Anybody else here doesn't? Anybody here like pain? We, we need to call 911. <laughs> I don't like pain, but I've come to treasure fruit. I hate pruning, but what God has done in my heart has been worth everything I've ever gone through in pruning. I see fruit. Years ago, I went to Rhoda Carr. She was in the first service. Rhoda Carr's mother's funeral. It was an amazing funeral. And although I didn't know her personally, I left that funeral a fan. She was this Mennonite Renaissance woman. She loved music, played it. She was a poet. She was a writer. She read voraciously. She was a self-taught scholar. 
And while she was doing all this, she was raising a large family, married, and running a farm. And she ran the farm more than her husband did. She helped her neighbors all the time. She was a humanitarian. And she was full of wisdom. She had a wonderful sense of humor, wonderful sense of humor, and laughed easily. She had a wonderful freedom in her spirit. She loved people, all kinds of people, deeply, and she loved God more. And as I was there at her funeral, I thought, what a fruitful life. What a testimony. And I don't know how or when or how long, but I know God made her this way, and there was a lot of pruning on the journey. And Rhoda was in the first service, and she walked up to me, and she said, you're right, there was a lot of pruning. Because people don't bear this much fruit without going through the pruning process. They just don't. You can have an easier life with leaves and a few grapes, or you can have big, luscious, juicy grapes. You can be pruned. By the way, I, when I thought about her, it was almost like listening to Vita Yoder's funeral. How many of you still remember Vita Yoder? That's a shame. Not, not nearly as many. That woman was incredible. I, did, I had the privilege of doing her funeral about 10 years ago. I've told people she was the best Christian I ever met. One of the things she did that, that I, I, I sometimes had to struggle with is back in the old church when we were 50 or 70 people, kind of like in this service, back in the old days, <laughs> it's a national holiday. Anyway. We have, actually, this morning, we have people in Russia. We have people in Aruba. We have people in Israel this morning. We have people in bed. Anyway, uh, <laughs> all over the place. And, uh, but anyway, Vida, Vida, you know, she wrote, she was just, I'm an English major and I preach for a living, but Vida was a wordsmith. And she would get up and we had prayer and share time when we were smaller and we'd let people make prayer. And Vida just always got up and told a story usually about five minutes long. That was too long, but nobody's going to, you know, I mean, it was mesmerizing. And she would just tell this wonderful story of how God did this or God did that and just make it come alive. And I was always sitting there going, oh, God, I've got to preach after this. There's no way I measure up to Vida and her storytelling. I had the privilege of doing her funeral. They paid me. I should have paid them. I should have paid them. You could sense Christ everywhere she went. She bore so much fruit. You know, one, one pastor said that not long ago he boarded an airport shuttle to get to the rental car lot. You know those shuttles, they run around airports. and Driving a shuttle is usually a thankless job. People are in a hurry. People are grumpy. But he said, this, this guy was different. He was an absolute delight. He was scanning the curbside looking for anybody who needed a ride. You know, he told us, I'm always looking because people are running late. You can tell it in their eyes. I'm always looking because I never want to miss one. Hey, here's another one. And he'd pull over and pick up a latecomer. And he was so excited about what he was doing. He said, we, the passengers, got excited. We were actually cheering him on when he was going around the parking lot cheering people. She said, he said, it was like watching Jesus drive a shuttle bus. The man would grab people's luggage before they could lift it. He'd throw it back on the bus and say, we're off. 
jaded commuters put down their newspapers to watch this guy. He created such a little community of joy on that bus that people sometimes would miss where they needed to get off just so they could ride a second or third time around the airport and watch him. He wasn't just our shuttle bus driver. The pastor said he was our leader. He was our friend. And for a few minutes, a special kind of community flourished on that bus on a shuttle bus for a rental car company, one person poured fruit, poured the image of Jesus into that shuttle bus. And it was compelling to everyone. And what happened to that shuttle bus driver is supposed to happen in all of us. And you know when fruit's coming? Let me give you a hint when fruit's coming. You do something that surprises you, and you catch a glimpse of the person you were made to be. You say something that really, really blesses somebody. You help a homeless man when no one else notices. You're patient with a rambunctious three-year-old who's stomping on your last nerve. You lose yourself in a piece of music in worship. You express compassion. You start caring about people you've never cared about before. You start caring about issues like racism. You start caring about the poor. You, you start caring like Jesus cares. You, you, may, you freely make a sacrificial gift. You fix an engine for a widow. You forgive an old hurt you've held on to for 10 or 15 or 20 years, and it surprises you. Something sprung up in you. It's called grapes. You say something you would normally never say, or you keep from saying something you normally would blurt out. And as you see this surprisingly coming through you, you catch a glimpse of why God made you. Only God knows your full potential, and he is guiding you toward that best version of yourself all the time. And he has many tools. And here's the thing I hate about the Lord. He's never in a hurry. I don't... He's got to speed up. <laughs> but even in our frustration, God is at work producing patience in us. He never gets discouraged by how long it takes, and he delights every time you grow. The master gardener prunes because he sees what you're going to be. He sees the fruit that's coming. He gets excited because he's transforming you into something beautiful. Only God can see that. Your spiritual life is not limited to certain devotional activities that you engage in. It is receiving power from the Spirit of God to become the person God had in mind when he created you. How does God want you to be? What are the fruit? Love, serenity, joy for no apparent reason, kindness even to people who don't deserve it, patience, humility, you know, I, I would say more about that, you know, how it's working in me, but humility prevents me. But <laughs> self-control, is there anything that's ugly about that? And I need to say this too. One of the things I love, one of the things I love is that I've been here for 38 years, and I get to see how God works over the long haul. You know, if you're a pastor at a church two or three years, often you don't get to see what God is doing. But if you're around for 38 years, folks, 
I, some of the, some people in this church are amazing miracles. When they first came to this church, they were nasty, nasty people. I wouldn't visit them. They were just nasty. Didn't like them. <laughs> Pastor Linda's going, stop, stop. There's visitors here. I'm sure you're not like those nasty people. But some of these folks are bearing gallons of fruit now. One person after the first service came up to me and, and, and she said, yeah, I was one of those nasty people. She said, when I used to go to the bank, tellers would go out the back door because they didn't want to work with me. She said it was true. And I, I believed her. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, I went into that bank the other day and this person uh, didn't see me before I got to them, the one that ran out the back door. And she said, I, I talked to her and we had the most pleasant time. And she, she went, finally, she couldn't stand it. She went, what happened to you? I used to run from you. You're sweet. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Jesus happened. Fruit bearing happened. And I need to say one more thing. In this church there, there's an orchard. There's an orchard of fruit in this room. There, I can smell it. I think that's it. <laughs> I can taste it. I can see God's fruit-bearing work in so many lives here. Some of you are miracles of the first order. And why? Because God cared enough to prune no matter what you're going through today, and I know some of you are going through terrible times today, I have two bits of advice based on John 15. Cling to the vine. Cling, stay, cling, stay connected. And never lose faith in the head gardener. He's working even when you don't know he's working. He is doing fruit things. Believe that, no matter where you're at this morning, and I will make you a promise. Fruit is coming. Fruit is coming. And it's been my joy for 38 years to see so much of it blossom. Hallelujah. I want you, let's take one second. I'd like the intercessors and the worship team to come forward, but I, wanna, I, want, I want you to just take one second as you sit there, and, and I want you to thank God for the vine and the life poured into you by the Spirit. And I want you to thank God that the Father is in charge of pruning. Praise the Lord.